Hello, and welcome back to Partial Lab. This is Ami Silver, writer at Aleph Beta. And this is Daniel Owenstein, also writer at Aleph Beta. Daniel, it's awesome to have a chance to do a Parsha podcast with you this week. I'm so excited. So I just want to remind our listeners out there, if you like this material, please sign up, subscribe to Partial Lab, and give us a five-star rating so that other people can find it too. So Daniel, I want to look at part of Parsha Matot here that's telling a familiar story, but I think hidden within it is a very unfamiliar story a kind of hidden story, if you will, in the Torah. So in chapter 32 in, in Bamidbar, the book of Numbers, we have this whole story of, you know, God and Reuven, these two tribes. They say, hey, Moshe, I know we want to all head into the land of Israel, but the place we are in right now, it's great pasture land for our flocks. And we've got a lot of sheep, and we'd like to stay here instead of going into the land. Right. And Moshe then has this major meltdown and starts yelling at them that they're going to sort of ruin everything that they've been working for in the desert. Pretty terrifying to be the representatives of God and Ruvain there, having Moshe sort of accuse you of uh, doing exactly what the spies did just a few generations ago. Right. So it seems like this request, it kind of re-triggers some really bad memories for Moshe. Absolutely. You're doing exactly what, what your ancestors did. You're going to ruin everything. No one's going to want to go into land because of this request that you're making. Okay, so walk us through the story a little bit. What what happens from there? Well, if I remember correctly, the representatives of God and Ruvain then sort of uh, explain to Moshe that they're happy to go into the land to fight with the rest of their brethren and to you know even be the frontline soldiers in the conquest. Um, and only when the land is conquered and divided will they go home. And then Moshe says... All right, sounds good. Let's do that. Right. So it's not only that they say, no, 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 Moshe, you got it wrong. We're going to go to the land too. They even offer to go ahead of everybody else, right? We're going to be on the front lines of the battle. Only then, only after everyone's got their place and they're safe and sound, will we come back to this part of the land. I think they even follow through on that, Ami. I think in the book of Yehoshua, it says that B'nai God and B'nai Ruvain actually were the frontline soldiers in the battle, and they actually didn't go home until everyone had settled in the, their place in the land. Right. So there's a couple things that I that I want to focus in on on this story. One of them is something that Rabbi Foreman dealt with at length in one of his previous Parsha videos, and the other is kind of another sort of hidden wrinkle in there that I think is worth exploring. So I want you to look with me at verse 16. This is kind of the turning point. The tribes have just made their request. Moshe's just given them a really strong reprimand. How could you be doing this? How could you be making the whole mistake all over again? And read for me, if you don't mind, starting at, at verse 16 here, what Reuven and God respond to Moshe. Okay. The representatives of Reuven and God approach Moshe and they say to him, so we'll build pens for our cattle here in the place that they want to settle. And cities for our children. And we will gird ourselves with weapons before the rest of the children of Israel. Until we bring them to their place. And our children will dwell in these fortified cities, I guess, in order to be protected from the other people who live around here. And we will not return to our homes until all of the other children of Israel inherit their inheritance. For we will not inherit with them from the other side of the Jordan. For our inheritance has come to us on this side of the Ardeen. 
Okay, thanks. So in short, this is the pledge that we mentioned before. We're going to build homes for our children and flocks here, but we're going to go to the front lines of battle, right? And then only after will we return. Now, in a previous video, Rabbi Foreman focused on the first words of, of verse 16 there, Vayigshu elav, Vayomru. It wasn't just that they launched into a, a response to Moshe. Moshe has a pretty good fear here. We've seen the entire project of this nation go down the tubes because people didn't want to go to the land. They were afraid to, they were hesitant to, and here they're about to enter. And Moshe, he's got reason to be afraid, right? So they make a good argument here by saying, you don't understand, Moshe, we're going to go out on the vanguards. We're going to go fight first. But there's something they do before they even open their mouths. And that's Vayikshuei love. They come close right. it, to Moshe. It feels like they're uh, trying to also maybe show how much they care about it by approaching. Right. So Rabbi Foreman's argument there was that Vayikshuei love is that they're literally closing the gap between them and Moshe. They're not just standing there arguing, fighting over two sides of a table. Oh, I'll give you a counteroffer. Oh, I'll give you a counteroffer. I'll give you a counteroffer. But they, in a sense, put aside the language of arguments and just step forward and speak to him one person to another, relating to one another as human beings. In Rabbi Foreman's words, they're building on the language of trust between them. Which is so interesting because it's such a great contrast to so many of the other requests that Bnei Israel have made throughout the book of Bamidbar, right? Where it seems to be that they're not interested in making things personal or uh, developing a close relationship with Moshe, where they're asking for things in a real human way. They're sort of just treating him like a person that they're going to hit with their complaints until he gives them what they want. Mm -hmm. Right. That's a good point. The whole time Moshe is just sort of this person who fills a role for the nation. He's more a symbol than a person. They turn to him when they need him. He gets angry at them when they treat him that way. But we don't see so much of this kind of human closeness between them. Really interesting. So there's something else that Vayig Shuelav evokes for us, though, Daniel. When you see those words Vayig Shuelav, what does it remind you of? Well, I do think that we have a similar language in, uh, in Sefer Bereshit. It's the first thing that pops into my head where Yehuda approaches Yosef, who at that point did not know was his brother, Yosef. Yehuda drew close to him to explain to him the dire situation in his family where if he didn't return home to his father with his brother Binyamin, then his father might die. And it's interesting because it does sort of evoke also the same sort of human aspect to a negotiation. I don't know if that's where you're going with this, but um, but that is really interesting that Yosef was this powerful viceroy, this leader figure, and yeah, Yehuda and his brothers needed something from him. And when they made the request to get Benjamin back, Yehuda was doing it in a way that seems like it was very much on you know human terms and appealing to someone's emotional side rather than a negotiation. Mm -hmm. So, Daniel, if we look back in Reshit 44, when Yehuda comes close to Yosef, right? He actually says something that might not be so different from what the tribes of Reuven and God are saying to Moshe right now. Because what are they saying to Moshe? They're saying, Moshe, we're going to go ahead of our brothers. We're going to, in a sense, protect them, go to the front lines, fight before them. We're going to take the responsibility for the rest of the nation on our shoulders. And remember what Yehuda was basically saying to Yosef. Yosef had taken Binyamin as captive, as a prisoner. And Yehuda told their, their father Yaakov, Binyamin will come back to you. I'm going to take responsibility for him. The words he uses when he says it to Yosef are, Ki avdecha arav et me'im avi. Lemor im lo avi avi Your servant has pledged himself for the boy to my father. And Arav is somebody 
who is a guarantor. They take full responsibility for another person. And you're saying that similarly, the tribes of Reuben and God are offering to somehow be a guarantor for the rest of the, the, their brethren. Even though they don't use that language, that's the offer they're making to, to Moshe. There's the Vaikshuelav. They come close to him and they say, we're going to take responsibility for our brothers by going out to battle before them. And there's kind of, as we're talking about it, something else that kind of pops into my mind is, what is Moshe accusing of them here right now? Well, he seems to be accusing them of uh, being insensitive to how the rest of their brethren will react to what they say. Right. And he's, he's comparing them to who? Uh, I think he's comparing them to the spies. He's comparing them to the spies. And what was it that Yosef accused his brothers of when they first came to Egypt? <laughs> what did he call he them? He accused them of being spies. He accused them of being spies. And if you just kind of glance at some of the language that Moshe uses, his first response to them, I'm going back now to, to Pasuk Vav, verse 6, Your brothers are going to go to battle and you're going to sit here? He's accusing them of abandoning their brothers, which is basically what Yosef's brothers did to him. Now, there's another really odd thing that goes on here, because as we said, Moshe reconsiders Reuven and God's offer, and he says, yeah, you know, we're going to agree to do this. But Moshe also adds another sort of unspoken condition to the deal. Would you mind reading it inside? Do you have it in front of you, Daniel? Yeah, sure. Vayitain lahem Moshe. So Moshe gave to them, So he gave to the children of God and the children of Reuven and also to half of the tribe of Menashe ben Yosef, the kingdom of Sichon, and also the kingdom of Og, Basically, all of the land and its borders. So what did Moshe do here that's really weird? Moshe seems to be adding in half of Shevet Menasha into the equation. So yes, he says, Reuven and God, you're not going to be the only tribes on this side of the Jordan. There's going to be half of the tribe of Menasha here on this side with you too. And he sets the other half of Menasha's plot in the land of Israel on the western side of the Jordan. So effectively, Reuven and God make this request. Moshe agrees to it. And then he just slips in there half of another tribe onto their plot of land. Ami, it's fascinating you're pointing this out. If you would have asked me to recount this story for you, I would have thought that the story said that half of the tribe of Menashe also asked to inherit land on the other side of the Ardain. But they actually don't show up in the story until this point, And we don't even have any record of them asking for anything. Is that really true? That is true, Daniel. Read all the verses in between that we skipped from we started at 16, 17, we ended up down here at 33. This is the first time we hear about this half tribe show up. Fascinating. It's bizarre, right? And what's even stranger is look at how the tribes are named here in verse 33. The children of God. The children of Reuven. And to half of the tribe of Menashe, son of Yosef. Now, it might make sense that Menashe is called son of Yosef because as we know, Yosef split into two tribes. But I think that there's something telling in the fact that he's called Menashe, son of Yosef. Because think about this whole kind of meta context we're looking at here. There's Vayigash. There's brothers coming close to take care of brothers. There's an accusation that the brothers are abandoning brothers. And there's a show of solidarity between the tribes that otherwise seems like it might lead to breakdown. And now, do you remember, Daniel, where Menashe was born and why he was given the name he was given? 
I'm pretty sure that Menashe was born in the land of Egypt and that his name has something to do with the fact that Yosef was abandoned. So yes, Menashe was born in Egypt, but let's just look at the verse when he's born and, and why Yosef gives him the name he does. I'm reading to you now from Breshit chapter 41. It says that Yosef has two sons. And in verse 51, Vayikra Yosef et Shem HaBechor Menashe. He calls his firstborn son Menashe. Kinashani Elokim et Kol Amaliv et Kol Beit Avi. Because God has Nashani, which biblically means allowed me to forget or made me forget. Et Kol Amaliv et Kol Beit Avi. All of my toil and all of my father's home. In a sense, Yosef is naming his firstborn son in Egypt the child through whom God has allowed me to forget all the pain of my family and my father's home. Wow. That's his firstborn son. The child who allows us to forget the pain of our family's past. And look who Moshe chooses to live on the two sides of the border of the land of Israel. Menashe seems to be the tribe that somehow is able to bridge between the brothers. He's the child who, for some reason, we can, we can venture to guess why Yosef felt this way when Menashe was born. But somehow what the tribe of Menashe embodies is an ability to not be stuck and hung up on all of the fights of our past, but to somehow move into a new stage where that's not defining how we're moving forward into the future. Interesting. You're saying that even though Menashe for Yosef symbolized his ability to move on without his family... And here, Menashe is symbolizing the ability of the ability to forget something. Well, I would say that for Yosef, Menashe isn't just symbolizing his ability to move on without his family. He's symbolizing for Yosef the ability to live a life that's not defined by all of the pain of, of what his brothers did to him. And here, when Reuven and God are threatening to arouse that same breakdown within the nation. And it's that same breakdown between brothers that Moshe is afraid of. And they're somehow showing that same move towards closeness that Yehuda exhibited towards Yosef. That Vayigash, that move towards closing the gap that was created between the tribes. Menashe becomes the perfect tribe who can fill in that space. Menashe is going to be able to remind all the tribes of the nation that you know what? Those people on the other side of the of the Jordan, they haven't left you. They haven't abandoned you. And all of you in the land of Israel, you don't have to feel, hold this grudge against Reuven and God. We're all part of one family. The pain of the past, Amaliv at Kol Beit Avi, the sale of Yosef, all of the fights and jealousy between brothers. We don't need to live in that same story anymore. Fascinating. I mean, I, I hear what you're saying. I'm a little bit a little bit on the fence because I think also part of what Yosef's intention was in naming Menashe, what he named him, was that he was sort of moving on and letting go of his family. But I do hear what you're saying that there's an element of also finding peace and letting go of brotherly animosity and family animosity. If what's going on here is that Moshe is concerned that there will be this animosity because people are separating, then having Menashe be the bridge as sort of a symbol of letting go of animosity. It's, it's an intriguing idea. So there's one other thing that, that I think is going on here in the text that I think tends to go unnoticed. And it has to do with the exact locations and area of land that Ruvain God and this half-tribe of Menashe are settling. If you remember, Daniel, these plots of land that they're all sitting in, these are the lands that they conquered from Sichon and Og, from the king of the Emirates, and Og Melech Habashan. 
And it's these lands that the, the Torah in the previous previous parsha, especially Chukat, the Torah goes through this whole history of these lands. They used to belong to Moab. They were taken over by the Emirates. Now, as the nation is on their way to the land, they conquer it from, from Sichon. I want to look look with you at some of the names specifically. I think there's a there's a lot here to unpack, but but one of the names of the places that was settled here by Reuven, and go with me to to where else that location comes up. I'm looking now at verse 37. Again, we're in Bamidbar chapter 32, verse 37. It says, Uvne Reuven banu et Cheshbon ve'et el the children of, of Reuven built up the cities of Cheshbon and El ve'et Kiryatayim, this other city, Kiryatayim. Then in the next verse, ve'et Nevo ve'et Balmaon. They also built up Nevo and Balmaon, and then there's a whole another another slew of, of cities that, that were built up. Daniel, Nevo, what do you know about Nevo? Well, it sounds like the uh, mountain where Moshe dies, Harnevo. Right. So in Devarim, we hear about this mountain, Harnevo, where Moshe dies. And before we go to the way end of the Torah, where Moshe actually ascends Harnevo, I want to look at a few psukim in the beginning of the book of Devarim, in chapter 3, where Moshe is actually retelling this whole scene of Ruvain and God and the request that they made. Basically, in chapter 3 of Devarim, starting in verse 16, Moshe starts talking about how these tribes made a request to, to settle these other lands, and he, he retells in the way of Sefer Devarim the whole story, the deal they made, etc. And what's really interesting is that when Moshe is retelling the story of Reuven and God's request, it goes right from there into verse 23, Moshe says, And then at that time, I started begging God. Now, Daniel, I'm not going to read all the psukim here, but when Moshe starts saying ve'et chanan, what's he referring to? What was he begging God for? Uh, I believe he was begging God to be allowed into the land that he was forbidden to enter. Exactly. He was begging God, let me pass into the land on the other side of the Jordan. So here, it's, it's really strange. Moshe's telling the story of the tribes who settled on one side of the Jordan. He tells Yehoshua, I left that out. He tells Yehoshua here in one or two verses, Yehoshua, don't be afraid. You're going to be able to win a battle there. And then he says, and at that very moment, I started begging God to allow me to cross the river and enter into the land. And you'd expect that to happen earlier because in the chronology we have in Sefer Bamidbar, it seems like first Moshe hit the rock and then only after that did he go through all the battles and all the conquering and then the request was made from God and Ruvain and you'd expect Moshe to start praying for the decree to be reversed right after it was given. Exactly. And it's kind of strange. I wonder if there's an implication here that somehow the whole affair of Reuven and God and Menashe and people who are willing to settle on the other side of the land, I wonder if somehow that evoked in Moshe that last final plea of, I really want to go in. Please, God, these people are going to stay on this side of the Jordan, but but can you allow me to cross that river? Can you allow me in? Interesting. What, what, what would know. the connection be? So, so I'm not really sure, but there is something really strange that ends up happening, right? Because we all know Moshe doesn't budge from that place. He stays in that plot of land. And if we go to the very last chapter of the whole Torah, Tvarim 34, Vaya'al Moshe Ma'arvot Moav, Moshe ascends from the plains of Moab. Again, Moab's lands are all of these lands of Sichon and Og that the people had conquered right there on the eastern side of the Jordan. Those were the lands that Reuven and God settled. 
Vayal Moshe el Harnevo Rosh Hapiska. He climbs up Harnevo to the mountaintop. Asher Yerecho. And God shows him a, a, a whole landscape. He gets to see where all of the tribes are going to settle. God says to him, Zota this is the land I promised the forefathers to give to their descendants. But Moshe, you're going to look at it with your eyes. You're not going to pass into that land. And Moshe dies there in the land of Moab. And he's buried in the land of Moab. Now it says nobody knows Moshe's burial place. But we know the general region where Moshe was buried. Where was that region? It sounds like it's in the land that was given to Ruvain. It sounds like it's in Ruvain's plot. Now there's a discussion. I'll just fill in here. Maybe it was in God's land. There seems to be some pasuk a little bit earlier in Vizal Tabracha that implies that, that Moshe is somehow buried in God's plot. But, but this land that Ruvain and God and the half-tribe of Manasseh settled on the other side of the Yardane, this plot of land that was somehow an extension of the land of Israel, it becomes the burial place of Moshe. So I want to ask you something, Daniel. Did Moshe get buried in the land or not? Well, I mean, it seems pretty clear from the fact that God denied Moshe's request that where he is is not considered to be part of the land of Israel. But it's also not some random place either. It's not like he got buried in Spain. He's buried uh in a land that is inhabited by the children of Israel, even if it's not in the borders of the land of Israel. It, it's really kind of strange. Moshe ends up being buried in sort of like Israel Heights, like the extension of the land of Israel, the part that's not the inheritance of the of the forefathers, but it's the part that was settled by these two tribes who wanted to stay there and who God agreed to give that land to and who Moshe agreed to give that land to. So, I mean, these are really fascinating things that we've been talking about. We talked about the connection between the request of B'nai God and B'nai Ruvain to the request of Yehuda, of Yosef, to return Binyamin. We spoke about the connection between Menashe's role in Yosef's life as the the thing that let him put aside his animosity with his family, and Menashe's role bridging the gap of Reuven and God and the rest of the children of Israel as a way to sort of make sure there is no animosity there either. And now we're also talking about how Moshe is actually buried in the sort of middle ground that's not Eretz Yisrael, but it's also not completely separate either. So what do you make of all this? So, Daniel, I, I think that there's a lot here that's sort of the beginnings of a theory. Here are some of the things that I'm noticing. There were these tribes who, as they're about to enter the land of Israel, they say, you know what, we want to stay right here on this side of the Jordan. Moshe agrees, God agrees, and they prove that they're remaining connected to their brothers on the other side. When Moshe retells that story, in the wake of their request, Moshe is saying that he started to beg God at that moment, please let me go into the land with the rest of this nation. Please let me cross that river and enter the land that you've promised us. God does not fulfill that request. But Moshe is not ultimately lost either. Because Moshe gets somehow taken in by those tribes who showed their commitment to their brothers and still live outside the land. It's almost as if, in some crazy way, the whole requests of God and, and Ruvain and the whole placement of half of the tribe of the Menashe there, maybe it was all some kind of pretext for Moshe to not be lost to this nation for all of eternity. 
Yes, Moshe did not enter the land. But you know what? He didn't just disappear into the desert somewhere. He got absorbed into his people who remained with him right there at the threshold of entering the land. I almost think that perhaps that kind of brotherly devotion and commitment that we were seeing from Reuven and God was extended to Moshe himself. He could have very easily been totally abandoned by the rest of the nation, the leader who led them out of Egypt all the way up to the land, and then just disappear and not have anything to do with them anymore. But although he didn't enter the land in his lifetime, his burial place, his eternal legacy, so to speak, exists among his people and exists specifically with those people who made a special request to stay outside the land and remain connected to the rest of the nation at the same time. I mean, that's really interesting. What I think I'm hearing you say is that Ruvain and Gad had this moment where it looked like they were going to be abandoning their brothers. They're going to be separated and in some way going to be completely disconnected from the rest of the children of Israel. But that ended up being an illusion, and they ended up being able to be connected through this bridge of Menashe. And Moshe was also faced with this potential complete separation from his nation. He wasn't going to be allowed into Israel, and he wasn't going to even be allowed to be buried in Israel. And somehow, because of the devotion that B'nai Gad and B'nai Ruvain express towards the rest of their brethren— which allows them to reunite even through a kind of separation, they also are able to house Moshe in their territory, allowing for a kind of reuniting of Moshe with his people, even though he was supposed to be separate as well. You know, Daniel, I really like the way that you framed that because it kind of makes it clearer to me that Reuven and God had a devotion to brotherhood, had a devotion to the nation that somehow superseded their devotion to the land itself. And as much as Moshe wanted to enter the land, that devotion to the land was not fulfilled, but the devotion to brotherhood was ultimately fulfilled. And somehow their de- the tribe's devotion to each other that transcended physical location was also able to be a devotion that included Moshe with them as well. Ami, I also wonder if the reason Moshe decided to try and pray again to be allowed to enter the land, specifically after the whole episode with Bnei Gad and Bnei Ruvain, was because Moshe was inspired by their expression of love and connection. Perhaps that gave him hope, right? Perhaps that made him feel, oh, there's an opportunity for things to to change. Right. There was this moment of feared separation, and that was able to be turned around. And maybe he thought that his feared separation could be turned around too. And whether or not Moshe realized it... It kind of (laughs) was. Because even though he didn't enter the land, he was ultimately buried with his nation. And Ami, what do you take away from this for your personal life? I'm thinking already of a lot of interesting implications for for my life, but what what do you think? I feel like it's hard to compare my own life goals to those of Moshe Rabbeinu, you know? But one thing that's kind of modeled here is it's possible to long for something your entire life, and you may not get that particular thing that you've been longing for. But even if you don't receive it in its most pristine, specific way, it's possible that there is still some kind of fulfillment that that can come to you, even if it's not the exact thing you've been wanting. I see Moshe as somebody who, until his last breath, was wanting to enter the land. And again, he may not have even realized that he was receiving a plot with his nation instead of a plot in the land. But that is ultimately what came from it. I really like that idea, Ami. I was thinking about the connection and the, and the devotion that you were talking about between B'nai Gad and B'nai Ruvain. 
and how even though they didn't sort of fit the mold of the rest of B'nai Israel and they, and they decided to sort of do their own thing, but that didn't mean that there wasn't a devotion and there wasn't a connection. I think there are always a lot of people in our lives who maybe we find it hard to be close to because they look different or they seem different. But when you get down to their core commitments, you know, really we're, we're more similar than we think. Um, and we're more connected than we think. And maybe uh, B'nai God and B'nai Ruven are a good reminder of that. They literally transcended borders. <laughs> so, Daniel, I'm really glad we got a chance to talk these things out. It's been on my mind. Um, this conversation really helped open some of the different pathways. And I think that there's a lot more to explore here. For all you listeners out there, we'd love to hear your comments, both on what we discussed. And if you find anything else, email us at info at alephbeta.org. And please remember, subscribe to Parsha Lab. If you've already subscribed, get your friends to subscribe. And as always, be sure to check all of the really rich material we have on our website at alephbeta.org. And also with Tishabov coming up, we have tons of great videos and content for you to see there. Shabbat Shalom, everybody. Shabbat Shalom, Daniel. Shabbat Shalom, Ami.